Monsignor Charles Pope, a priest of Washington, D.C., says that Christmas is God with us. Good Friday, God for us. And Pentecost, God in us. If we recall, Pentecost, which we hear about in today's first reading, Acts chapter 2 of Acts of the Apostles, is when the Holy Spirit of God is offered and descends upon the first Christian community. It's also known as like the birthday of the church. Well, Pentecost is closely associated in the Old Testament to the incident at the Tower of Babel. If we recall Genesis chapter 10 and 11, what happens at the Tower of Babel? Well, there are people speaking in many different languages, and as a result, there's a lot of confusion because they can't understand one another. Now, Pentecost, there's a similarity and yet a very stark dissimilarity. It undoes the effects of Babel. So Pentecost, likewise, there are people who speak in many different languages, and to the bewilderment of all who are gathered, they somehow are able to understand one another. And so this is why Babel becomes a symbol of confusion and division, while Pentecost is a symbol of unity. And just want to underline a simple truth here that unity and diversity are not in opposition. You know, sometimes we write people off, people who have different ideas or who think differently, have a different mentality, different viewpoint, different positions, whatever it might be. And we simply dismiss them and we say, well, they're so different. And what we're implying is they're so different, we're never going to see eye to eye and we can't experience communion or unity with them. And yet, that's really kind of a fallacy because the necessary prerequisite of unity is actually diversity and diversity is not an obstacle to unity in fact what the lord calls us to in the body of christ is unity and not sameness right now sameness would be just the complete abolition of all diversity and god actually really likes diversity that's why he made us different he really enjoys diversity and diversity is the prerequisite for unity because we're not talking about sameness. God doesn't want just a whole bunch of vanilla and people without any personality and just to become some one massive blob, right? You know, you think about like pantheism. That is just not the case. And so diversity is actually the prerequisite for unity. And in fact, I'm not making this up because we look at the Trinity. We look at God himself and there's a diversity a distinction between the, div the divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God isn't just one massive blob, right? There's a distinctiveness. There's a personality to each divine person. And it's precisely that diversity which allows unity to be possible. Now, this is very relevant because in our culture, when we refer to specifically, I want to highlight diversity in terms of people thinking differently than we have we do right different mentalities different viewpoints different positions what does the culture do when someone disagrees or thinks differently than you well we cancel them we hate them we call them all sorts of names right and as christians that's just not okay 
We need to be different as Christians. And in fact, I would say that one of the signs of immaturity is how you treat people who you vehemently disagree with. And I would say that a sign of great maturity is those who you vehemently disagree with that you're still able to love them. It doesn't mean you agree with them. So for instance, if I am a mature person or a person growing in maturity, then even though there are certain bishops in Germany who are in stark opposition to the teaching of Jesus Christ in some areas, that even though their theology and their theology of the priesthood is really, quite frankly, messed up, and even though I vehemently disagree with them, I am still called to love them. This is really important as Christians. Our unity, where does our unity come from, right? Obviously the chiefs. No, not the chiefs. And it's not our political views, right? Our unity flows from God himself. Our unity flows from what makes us one, what makes us united. Only God can unite us. It's literally the spirit of God. Because God doesn't just want to dwell among us. He wants to dwell within us. Isn't that remarkable? And if he dwells within us, and if we are open and receptive because we can reject that gift, right? God doesn't force himself upon anyone. If we are receptive to allowing God to inhabit our soul, this happens at, in baptism, in sanctifying grace, in continuing to remain in a state of grace and cultivating his sanctifying grace in our life. It is the Holy Spirit who unites us. Now we established that at Pentecost, is when the first Christian community received the Holy Spirit. And for us, what about us? When do we receive the Holy Spirit, right? We just mentioned it, at baptism. At every person's baptism, we receive, it is our first encounter with the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Trinity within us. God doesn't just wanna be among us or with us, he wants to be inside of us in the truest way. Now, let me ask you this question. When we refer to the different Easter mysteries, so specifically Easter Sunday, the ascension of our Lord, and today, Pentecost, so you think about Easter Sunday, our Lord conquers sin and death. In the ascension, it's our Lord's homecoming back into heaven. And Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit, how can we understand these three? And in fact, Dr. Scott Hahn and different theologians, they talk about the remarkable unity of the passion, death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. Does it make a difference? Does the fact that the Lord ascends into heaven or the fact that he gives us his Holy Spirit, does it make a difference? Or would it have been enough for our Lord to have simply written um, from rising from the dead and if he just remained? So, a simple thought experiment. If Jesus rose from the dead and he just decided just to remain with us in these last 2,000 years, so we can like actually wave to Jesus and Jesus is just kind of, you know, roaming the earth, you know, saying his hellos and going on his 2,000 year victory march of how he's conquered sin and death, would that have been enough for us? Well, if the whole purpose, if God's goal for humanity is that he wants to reunite the human family, he needs to give us the Holy Spirit. 
And as long as he's simply roaming the earth and has not ascended into heaven, then that hasn't yet taken place. As long as he's roaming the earth, the sacraments aren't a reality because he ascends not in order to abandon us, but in order to be present to us in a ubiquitous way through grace, through the sacraments and through baptism. And as long as he's roaming among us, sacramental baptism isn't a reality. Or likewise, if you think, if our Lord ascends into heaven, but he chooses not to give us the Holy Spirit, can we experience Christ's victory, Christ's victory on the cross? Can we experience Christ's resurrection? Well, that grace isn't made accessible to us. Let me offer you, perhaps an analogy is in order. You think about food, let's say we're at home and we're hungry and we wanna eat. Now, food is only beneficial to us when? You know, um, if you're staring at food, it, it's not really beneficial to us, right? Food is only beneficial to us when we actually eat the food. That's when we can receive its nutrients, etc. So likewise, let's say food, you don't, let's say you don't have any food at home. Well, if you don't have any food at home, you can't benefit from that food. But let's say, okay, someone delivers some food, food and you do have food at home. But if it's not an edible form, so let's say you've got this frozen steak, it's not an edible form. You, it, it's only like a potential benefit to you. As long as you don't have food, or as long as that food is not an edible form, it can't benefit you. And as well, let's say you thaw it out, you cook it, and it's right in front of you, but you choose not to eat it. You choose just to stare at it. It's still not benefiting you, right? So the only point at which that food is gonna benefit you is when you actually eat it. So the point I'm trying to make is, likewise, as that happens with food, as long as the Holy Spirit has not been offered and we've received it, Christ's grace is just like a theoretical idea. We don't actually access it. And this is why baptism is so key. And it's not a one-time incident. Do you know, so we can ask this question. The Holy Spirit is offered to us at baptism. Do you know people who have been baptized and who are no longer practicing the faith? Or do you know people who have been baptized and are simply going through the motions of their faith? Or do you know people who have been baptized and it seems pretty clear that their lives have not been transformed by Jesus Christ? Sadly, we know them. Now, does this mean that just because we know people in these type of categories that baptism just doesn't work? No, that's not the case. It requires a cooperation. You know, our Lord wants an engagement. He wants a free-willed response. And so that's why it requires faith and baptism. And this is an ongoing journey. It's an ongoing daily yes. And so I want to ask, how much of the Holy Spirit do you want? How free is the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit captive because we don't allow him to do anything and we say, here's what you can do and here's all the things that you can't do? Who of us wants to give the Holy Spirit unbridled authority, unbridled permission to do whatever he wants in our lives? I dare you, I dare you to give the Holy Spirit unbridled access, unbridled authority, unbridled permission to do whatever he wants in your life every single day and hang on for the ride.